Welcome back. Let's begin with a prayer. I'm going to read the psalm prayer at the end of the third psalm of the Office of Readings from last Saturday. Did you get all that? (laughs) It's actually relevant. The psalm prayer, so at the end of certain psalms in the Liturgy of the Hours, in the different hours, there'll be a psalm prayer. So I'm going to read this one. And just pay attention to it. It's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. God, our creator, how wonderfully you made man. You transformed dust into your own image and gave it a share in your own nature. Yet you are more wonderful in pardoning the man who had rebelled against you. Grant that where sin has abounded, grace may more abound so that we can become holier through forgiveness and be more grateful to you. We make this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to come around to that. In fact, I'm going to spend a bit of time talking about the first reading in the Office of Readings from last Sunday. If you follow along in the Office of Readings in the Liturgy of the Hours, Uh, It makes its way through the books of the Bible in the first reading, and and then it has a second reading from some saint or from uh, some document of the church. So in recent days, it's been covering the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings. And so I'm going to draw some um, of the theme of today's program from uh, this story found in uh, 1 Kings. Kings 16, um, about uh, about Elijah and his reliance upon God. So uh, just as a, a quick word, um, as I mentioned to you just at the very beginning of the program, um, so Kerry got COVID about, gosh, three weeks ago? About three weeks? No, two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, um, she got it. She was sick for about a week. And just as she started feeling better, I started coming down with the signs of the flu. I had been tested after being with her for several days and I had tested negative. But then all of a sudden some of the symptoms came up and I'm like, okay. So after five or six days of the symptoms, I decided to go get tested. And sure enough, I tested positive. So I'm now today, when you hear this, I think I'm on day nine or 10 from when I first had symptoms. So still in that quarantining mode. Um, So I get to spend a lot of time in my house, in my room. (laughs) Anyways, this is the first day I've felt well enough to do a program. So I appreciate there were several of you that reached out and said, hey, Tom, where are you? How come you're not producing new programs or the podcast hasn't been updated in a while? So that's nice to know. Um, And anyways, I'm um, I'm feeling really well. Uh, honestly, thanks be to God. Um, still, my throat's a little tired, so you'll, you'll hear a little bit of that scratchiness in the throat. And I would appreciate a prayer um, for myself, for Carrie. None of the kids have gotten it. Um, no one has tested positive among the kids. Um, so I, I don't know. It's a kind of a mystery, um, but the kids seem to be pretty um, uh, stout in their immune systems. Um, but there you go. So uh, today on the program, I'm going to share with you some reflections that have come from prayer and from a talk I gave. I actually gave a talk on Saturday evening over Zoom 
to um, a, a, a movement, a Catholic movement, and I had a chance to unfold for them. And I thought, you know, this is, it's, it's, it's a theme that I've talked about before on the program, but every time I share it, it, it comes out with uh, new facets. And so there are some new facets that I want to draw attention to. And, and it has to do, uh, in the past, I, saw, I would refer to it sometimes as three moments of God's call. And it's really this whole dynamism of how God's call unfolds itself in our lives. Um, and it's simply put, I'm going to talk about the moment of vocation. That's the moment where I'm called. And do you experience that moment where you are called? So I have, I have some new thoughts and insights to share about that. So the, the moment of vocation. And, and then most spiritual writers will immediately jump to the moment of transformation. And that's the moment where I'm empowered. So once we hear God's call, I'm called, then we experience God's grace to be able to fulfill that call, right? As you are called, so you shall be graced. As you are called, so, sh- so you shall be gifted, right? That basic sort of fundamental dynamic in our life of faith, and it's very true. So a lot of people love to go from that sense of recognize what the call is and then call upon the Lord to give you the strength you need to fulfill it. It's that middle moment. It's that, that That's really the first moment and the third moment in God's call. It's the middle moment that is so often understated or just missed in so many books on prayer and discipleship. And it's the moment of desperation, It's the moment where I cry out, I am powerless. So standing between I am called and I am empowered is a moment of I am powerless. And and this is the moment, the funny thing is, is that when I have a chance to talk about this and break it open and share that what we should be looking for are the traces of these moments in our own journey as disciples. We should be able to point to and recognize each of these moments, a moment of vocation where God took the initiative and broke into my life and helped me realize that I was seen, known, named, loved, and called, planted here in this moment in history with a purpose, with this family, with even all these messiness and brokennesses of my background. This is, this is who I am. This is who God, God has called me and planted me here out of love. I have been designed with a purpose that's divine. I have a mission. I have a reason for being. That that moment, we should all be able to point to and say, yes. That's when that moment happened for me. And here's how I nurture and foster that moment in my own life of faith, but also in in the lives of faith of my kids, right? In my spouse, in our marriage. Because your marriage can have that moment of vocation. Okay, the the moment of empowerment. Like if I said to you, and and we're gonna cover this, like where do you experience a sense of being empowered by God with supernatural strength, with a sense of anointing, where things flow, where you just have a sense of light, where you have a sense of guidance, where you have a sense of strength to get through things, where you see obstacles removed, you see protection given, you see a sense of flowing and moving through things with peace. Like this is the transformative moment of God's power. 
Like, where is it? Where are those moments in your life? How do you foster those? Where do you seek after that strength that comes from the Lord? How does that happen for you? And and you know what? For a lot of Catholics, they have a hard time naming those two moments. The moment that the interesting thing is the moment that people can identify with much more carefully, much more existentially, is the moment of desperation, that middle moment, that moment where I'm powerless. I don't have what it takes. I don't have the strength to go forward. I can't see how to cross this unbridgeable gap. I I don't know how to do that. See, these experiences are the experience of being powerless. The experience in um, strong form, you could call it desperation. Have you ever felt desperate? Have you ever felt that sense of desperation um, in your own life, in your marriage, raising kids? One of the big jokes that I said in this talk on Saturday, I've said it before, is that I never gave such good talks on raising teens as I did before I had any. (laughs) Sorry, that's funny every time I say it. Uh, I I had all these wonderful ideas and principles and practices about how raising teens would go smoothly if you only followed them. And then I started having one, two, three, four, five teens at a time. And yeah, you know what? Didn't happen. Wasn't like that. And it was, what, what was it like? Well, the vocation and the transformation were two things, but the desperation, I am powerless, that was another and and here's one of the big keys is that it's not like, oh, the moment of desperation, that moment of feeling powerless is somehow just sort of like a side road until God gets you back on track, or it's just something that happens because we live in a fallen world. No, no, it, it actually, the, the moment of powerlessness is a privileged moment. Okay, it's a privileged moment. Why? In what way? Like, okay, let me avoid that privilege. Well, it's a privileged moment because it is through the door of our poverty that we experience God's strength. St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, it is when I am powerless, it is then that I am strong. So the... The thing is, is that we hear it and we don't believe it. Or even if we like have experienced it, it was when we had that breakdown that it became a breakthrough. It was when we experienced the fact that we had nothing and we cried out to God that all of a sudden God shows up with great power. We still don't want it. We still want to avoid existential situations where we experience desperation. So, Tonight's on Insight, I'm going to circle back to these three moments and relate them to your life, but also to raising kids. Um, It's, again, something that just bubbled up in a new way for me. Um, And so uh, let's let's just dive in. Let's dive in. Let's let's go back to that first moment, the moment of um, vocation. Excuse me. That moment of God's call. And when you take a look at these, these moments of uh, I'm called, I'm powerless, and then I'm empowered, right? Uh, before I get into that first moment, 
you do, if you stop and ponder these three moments, vocation, desperation, transformation, call, powerless, empowerment, um, you see it in, in the lives of the uh, old, all these Old Testament saints and patriarchs, uh, as well as New Testament, right? But just four in the Old Testament, Abraham, right? He's called to be the father of many nations. That's his call. That's his vocation. But what is the experience? The powerlessness. I don't have any children. My wife is barren uh, and I'm too old. How is this possible? I'm powerless. Well, that's where God's power comes in. I've got the power. And it's God's power that's precisely most radiant in those circumstances that are most empty of capacity. Doesn't that make sense? It's when we really, really, really are at the end of our ropes. We've got nothing left where we've been wrung out, run dry, completely lost, and and, and feeling like, how am I... I have literally nothing to bring to the table that all of a sudden when it all happens, it's like, wow, that was God. God gets the glory. It was clearly God. This 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 was all the Lord. None of it was from me. So Abraham, a perfect example. Look at Moses. Moses gets called from the burning bush to set um, his people free in, in Egypt. Well, one little problem. He's a wanted murderer. Oh, by the way. And so 40 years of humbling in the desert and now he's going to be sent. And what does he say? Uh, pick someone else. I don't have the ability to speak in persuasive language. I am powerless. I'm powerless. And so what does God say? I got you covered. I'll send you Aaron. He'll speak for you. And, um, and, and even then, he's resistant. He resists, even though God promises the power. And he eventually surrenders. He submits. And, and isn't that a hard thing, right? When you hear a call, but in order to fulfill that call, you have to go through the doorway of powerlessness. Aren't we a little bit like Moses? We resist. We rebel. We want to reject. We want to walk away. If that's what it's going to take, that we have to be completely reliant on the Lord and the way that he's going to provide his strength, maybe it would be easier just to not do it, right? And, and yet, these are the, like Jeremiah, same thing. Isaiah, same thing. Jeremiah, you're called to be a prophet to the nations. I'm powerless. I'm too young. How am I possibly going to fulfill this call if I'm so young? The Lord says, I will put my words into your mouth. Isaiah, he gets called. Whom shall we send? Who will go for us? And what does he say? I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. And what does the Lord do? The Lord doesn't say, no, 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 you're not, you're, you really aren't. He says, no, I'm going to send a coal, <laughs> a burning coal from the angels going to take it and going to cleanse you. So I will empower you. I will cleanse you precisely at that point where you are powerless to transform you by my strength. So those are all easy examples from the Old Testament. You could go on and on with others uh, in the New Testament as well. Um, but I'm up against a break. When we come back, I'm going to dive into that first moment some more. I'm called and bring out this like new facet of insight that's connected to raising kids in faith. Back in a minute with Sound Insight. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Kern. It's great to be with you all. And I do appreciate prayers for me as I um, come to the final stages of my time having tested positive with COVID. Um, and so it'll be nice to be out of quarantine very, very soon. Praise be to God. And feeling great. I'm feeling really great. It just, for me, the, um, the impacts were just um, not, not that strong, honestly. It was just like a, a, like a, a bad cold. Um, even though I was in bed for quite a bit, 
um, really low energy was a, was a big factor. So um, coming back around today on the program, I'm talking about uh, these three moments of, of the dynamic of God's call as it unfolds in our lives, that I'm called, I feel powerless, and then I'm empowered. So the moment of vocation, the moment of desperation, and then the moment of transformation. So let's take a look at this moment of vocation first. It's really, uh, it's an important first moment. Uh, This moment, like this first moment of vocation, if we stopped and said, like, where do I experience this in my life? Like, where have I ever experienced this idea that God is calling to me? God is addressing me. I have been called to be here for a purpose. Where would I first like ponder that in order to believe it? Well, it's actually in the very first call that you have. The very first call you have is the call, the being called into being. Did you hear that? The being called into being is itself the first trace, the first sign, the first expression of God's loving plan for your life. It is good to be here. It is good that you exist. That is a very powerful first moment that we Catholics, we Christians, we Catholic Christian disciples of Jesus ought to mine. We ought to drill into it. We ought to dig into it to really appreciate our status. There's a beautiful quote by um, Cardinal Ratzinger in uh, Pope Benedict XVI in an early book on principles of Catholic theology, and he talks about joy as the first, rejoice as the first word of the gospel, of the good news, and digs into this joy that comes from just recognizing that it's good that we exist. And this comes from this address from God ultimately from God. And so I want to read this quote to you. I haven't read it for years uh, on the program, but it is so beautiful that those of you that might be struggling with that sense of it's good that you exist, it's good that you're here, and that your very being, your very existence is a sign of God's loving calling you into being with a purpose. Okay, this is from, again, the then Cardinal Ratzinger. The root of a man's joy is the harmony he enjoys with himself. He lives in this affirmation. And only one who can accept himself can accept the thou, the other, can accept the world. The reason why an individual cannot accept the thou, cannot come to, a, cannot come to terms with him, is that he does not like his own I, and for that reason cannot accept another person's I, their thou. Something strange happens here. We've seen that the the inability to accept one's own I leads to the inability to accept another I, a thou. But how does one go about affirming, assenting to one's own I, one's own self? The answer may perhaps be unexpected. We cannot do so by our own efforts alone. Of ourselves, we cannot come to terms with ourselves. Our I, our sense of self, 
becomes acceptable to us only if it has first become acceptable to another self, another I. We can love ourselves only if we have first been loved by someone else. The life a mother gives to her child is not just physical life. She gives total life. When she takes the child's tears and turns them into smiles. It is only when life has been accepted and is perceived as accepted that it becomes also acceptable. If an individual is to accept himself, someone must say to him, it is good that you exist. Must say it not with words, but with that act of the entire being that we call love. The key to the self to the I, lies with the thou, with the other. The apparent so simple act of liking myself, of being at one with myself, actually raises the question of the whole universe. It raises the question of truth. Is it good that I exist? Is it good that anything at all exists? Is the world good? The content of the Christian gospel reads, God finds man so important that he himself has suffered for man. The cross is in truth, the center of the gospel, the glad tidings. It is good that you exist. No, it is necessary that you exist. The cross is the approval of our existence not in words, but in an act so completely radical that it caused God to become flesh and pierced this flesh to the quick. That to God, it was worth the death of his incarnate son. One who is so loved that the other identifies his life with this love and no longer desires to live if he is deprived of it one who is loved even unto death. Such a one knows that he is truly loved. But if God so loves us, then we are loved in truth. Then love is truth, and truth is love. Then life is worth living. This is the gospel. Christianity is, by its very nature, joy the ability to be joyful. The rejoice with which it begins expresses its entire nature. So that was very powerful. I hope that you got a sense of that because it points to one of the radically important ways that we as husbands or wives and we as mothers or fathers help to sow seeds in the hearts and minds of our kids and of each other, that it is good that you exist. It's more than just saying that by words. Ratzinger talks about it's the whole manner of being. It's the look in our eyes. It's the smile in our eyes and on our face. When Balthazar, a colleague of his, said it's the smile of the mother that evokes, that calls forth, 
the eye of the little baby into self-consciousness. The baby only becomes aware of herself or himself as an I, as a person, is through the address in love, the smiling address in love of the mother upon the baby. It's that loving smile that evokes that sense of, it is good that I am, because you affirm me, celebrate me, acknowledge me through that love, through that smile. So that, that's a personal encounter right there. That is a very powerful encounter. And many, many young people today are at a loss because they don't have that kind of authentic, profound encounter. They are told not to um, attend so much to that encounter as to the other sources of affirmation or confirmation of their identity, from how they look, from the shape of their body, from how pretty they are or handsome, how much attention they get that is affirming from around them, their pursuit of a degree of applause, of attention that is ultimately empty. It ultimately lacks any depth because they know so quickly that the affirmation is about something on the surface, something filtered, something forged, something false. And so they're left with this deep ache in their hearts. And that deep ache is a longing for the kind of affirmation that Ratzinger was talking about. This brings me back to that first vocation. That first vocation is to realize that just to be, just to exist, is to be addressed by God in love. You have heard me, that's again from Balthazar's insight, that this idea of being created in love, it's not just created and spun off at a distance. No, you're held in love. You're held in existence by love. And so if you can access that being loved moment, that being loved reality in just being, that will help foster the fundamental foundational reality that I'm called. I'm called into being. But, but Ratzinger draws out the deeper, more personal, Trinitarian dimension of vocation when he brings up the cross of Jesus. That this call is also a called by Christ, a called by name by Christ, uh, standing at the door and knocking Christ. You heard me say it, I don't know, in the last month, Paragraph 478 from the Catechism. Jesus knew and loved us each and all during his life, his agony and his passion, and gave himself up for each one of us. But to hear that, to hear it again with the detail, he knew and loved you during his life. Not just while he's in heaven, after he went through his life, he gets to heaven and then looks down on the unfolding of history and says, oh wow, I guess I underwent the cross back then for these people that I didn't even know were going to exist. That is not the reality. Jesus is God become man. 
Jesus, as God, existed outside of time, entered into time, taking on flesh, but in his divinity knew and loved you 2,000 years in the future. He had you in mind personally during his life, his preaching, his teaching, through his encounters with others. He also had you in mind as well as during his agony in the garden, his carrying of the cross, his crowning with thorns, his crucifixion, his death. He had you in mind, you personally. That's part of vocation as well. Again, we could point to so many great saints whose lives changed only when they had that sense of an encounter with Jesus Christ that was personal, where they came to know with an utter clarity and depth that they were personally known, named, and addressed by Jesus Christ. Jesus was with me. Jesus was with them. And so this is something that when Cardinal Ratzinger unfolds this, he does so in a way that he draws attention to the fact that sometimes we can overemphasize as parents conformity in our kids with regards to the teachings that they accept as true, with regards to the moral code that they pursue, and with regards to the rituals that they attend. Did you track that? They go to Mass, they believe what the Church teaches, and they strive to live according to the moral code. Now, do those things add up to being Christian? Again, the quote from Pope Benedict, being Christian is not the result of an ethical choice following the church's moral code or a lofty idea, believing what the church teaches. But the encounter with, the, with an event, a person, Jesus Christ, which gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction. A whole new way of seeing everything comes with the encounter with Jesus. That's where being Christian begins. It's in the communion with Jesus, the transformative encounter. Now, theologically, that happens at baptism. Baptism involves an encounter, a whole new creation encounter, a transformative encounter. And let's not doubt that. Let's believe that. And yet, the call, the challenge that we have is to ensure that our emphasis as parents doesn't become so focused on having our kids make the ethical choices and believe the lofty ideas that we fail to focus on fostering the encounter, fostering events, places of meeting Jesus Christ in an intimate, personal, and profound way. If we somehow miss that part of things, then we're going to end up in a scriptural place that we don't want to be. What is that place? I'll tell you in a minute. 
Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. It's great to be with you today. So as we continue this program, I'm reflecting on this first moment of God's call, this moment of vocation, and how one of the challenges that we face as parents is that we can put such an emphasis on wanting our kids to conform to the church's teaching in their minds. Now, that's not a bad thing, right? You should be forming your kids in what the church teaches. You should be helping them understand why these teachings are true, why they're good, why they're beautiful, how they play themselves out in living an authentic life as a disciple. So should we downplay that? No. Should we um, recognize that that hasn't happened sufficiently for 50 years? Yeah, absolutely. Do we recognize that a failure to adequately and profoundly catechize um, Catholics has had a tremendously damaging impact on um, the practice of Catholics in this, you know, in the older generation and baby boomers and millennials? Yeah, absolutely. Um, however, um, what about uh, so what happens if we overfocus on? Are you believing what the church teaches? Are you following the moral code? Should we not want the kids to follow the moral code? Absolutely, we should. Um, and then going to Mass and following Catholic rituals, should we want that? Absolutely. Now, all those things we uphold as standards in our own home. However, we take seriously what Pope Benedict says. It's another quote from Pope Benedict. Actually, this was when he was Cardinal Ratzinger. He said, Today Christianity is seen as an old tradition weighed down by old commandments, something we already know, which tells us nothing new. A strong institution, one of the great institutions that weigh on our shoulders. If we stay with this impression, we do not live the essence of Christianity, which is an ever new encounter, an event, thanks to which we can encounter the God who speaks to us who approaches us, who befriends us. It is critical to come to this fundamental point of a personal encounter with God, who also today makes himself present and who is contemporary. If one finds this essential center, one also understands all the other things. But if this encounter is not realized, which touches the heart, all the rest remains like a weight, almost like something absurd. Let me read that last two sentences again. If one finds this essential center, one also understands all the other things. But if this encounter is not realized, which touches the heart, all the rest remains like a weight, almost like something absurd. Now, in my own life, that is absolutely true. I grew up in a strong, traditional, conservative Catholic home. And it was, and I knew all about following the rules. I knew all about the fear of hell if I broke the church's moral code. No question. I sincerely had a fear of hell. And it was a incredible wall of resistance against doing evil and sinful things. I definitely believed 
what the church taught. And no question, if you lived in the current home, you went to Mass. <laughs> and regular confession and other special feast days, etc. So that was the life that I had growing up. I experienced the burden and weight of the commandments and living the church's teaching and fulfilling the church's rituals. But what I had been missing was the encounter, was that event, was that sense of the Lord breaking in, personally unveiling me, removing the blinders from my eyes, unveiling to me his love that was personal, intimate, profound, life-giving, changing everything. That happened for me in adoration. That happened for me when my faith got tested at the doctrinal level and I didn't have answers. I was 18 and a half and I didn't have answers. I had learned the teachings, did not know how to defend them, certainly didn't know how to defend them with the scriptures. And thanks be to God, I was led by my pastor to the chapel, and I was invited to ask Jesus for that encounter in the Blessed Sacrament. And he did. Um, and it was a pure gift. I couldn't make it happen, could not cause it to happen, didn't deserve it to happen, didn't find a secret formula to say to make it happen. Uh it, it wasn't like I read a document and then all of a sudden my eyes were opened. No, it was an event. It's, it's that theological category. It, there's a whole theology of event. Uh, Cardinal Ratzinger had a deep, profound understanding of the concept of time in the church's tradition. His second doctorate was on the uh, concept. It had to do with time in Bonaventure. And... Um, uh, this idea of an event is that ordinary time is broken open and something new and different happens. And that's what happens in our lives of faith, is that there's an event, and that event is marked by this sense of meeting, this sense of Jesus was here. He met me. I saw him. I heard him. Uh, he, I, I felt his presence. I, I sensed his power, his hand was on me. You have all these people using, who talk about these encounters, tangible manifestations that happen at the felt level. Sometimes, you know, in one of the senses, I saw, I heard, I smelled, I, I touched, I uh, sensed, right? There was just uh, something where the Lord drew close. And that's what we need to teach our kids to ask and seek and knock for that encounter. That's what we need to foster in ourselves, in our marriages. Have you ever, as a couple, set aside time where maybe you read the scriptures or you went to adoration together and you said, please, Lord, please meet us, encounter us, break in, break open, something like that. It would be really, really beautiful. So it's something that I encourage you to, um, to do as a couple. Sincerely, go to adoration together. 
and on your knees ask, seek, knock. Lord Jesus, please unveil your love for us to us, your love for our marriage to our marriage. And you can beg for that for your kids as well. Lord, I beg you right now, please break into the lives of my children, each of them, all of them, especially that child that you know is most desperate right now, is most broken right now, who is in most need of a touch of your love, a sign of your presence, a light to lift her out of a place of darkness, out of a place of stuckness, out of a place of deception, into a place of freedom and light. Lord, beckon her forth, lead her forth, call her forth, touch her heart. Lord Jesus, please let this be a moment of conversion. Let a breakdown lead to a breakthrough. Please, Lord, you can do this. Make it so. Let it happen. You're in charge, Lord. I just cry out as a father for his daughter. Break in, Lord. Do that. Lord, I just call with all the authority you've given to me over my kids' lives, protect and provide and lead them into these encounters with your heart, the loving heart that forgives, that renews, that that sets free. Please, Lord Jesus, do that. Okay, that prayer I prayed, I prayed that for me and for you. I prayed that prayer authentically, meaningfully, personally, but I did it to also give you a testimony, a witness, and to to allow you to share in a heartfelt prayer. You see, a, a heartbroken open prayer, a heartfelt prayer where there is a breaking open that happens is a beautiful gift. It's a beautiful gift that the Lord will give you. So you see how this, this whole reality of, of the call, of the vocation, is often brought to fulfillment through the moment of desperation, through that moment of breaking down, that moment of a call that seems to go unfulfilled. So I can't bring this up enough that you parents, moms, dads, husbands, wives, individuals, grandparents, seek for this encounter for your own life first. Seek Ask and knock for this encounter for your spouse, your children, your grandchildren, your parents, your siblings, your nephews, your nieces, for your priest, for your bishop, for the Pope. The Lord longs to break in and break open in new ways. There's, there's no end. There's, there's no like reaching the bottom of the newness of the encounter with Jesus. But if the only thing that we do or the principal thing we emphasize is the following of the church laws, the believing of the church beliefs, the practicing of the church practices, the kids might just end up, how? How will they end up? I ran out of time. (laughs) They can end up as Pharisees, what Jesus calls whitewashed tombs. Wow. From the outside, man, they dress reverently when they go to Mass. They stand tall and strong when it comes to defending the church's teaching, super solid in professing a Catholic faith and defending the church. They uh, even will pursue a sense of integrity and justice and doing the right thing um, because that's just what you do. It's what God commands. But 
that kind of total practice of the faith will lead to death on the inside. That's what a whitewashed tomb is. It looks beautiful from the outside, but there's dead bones on the inside because the encounter isn't there. Jesus warned about this. It's kind of a mysterious thing when you think about it. It's easy for us to just um, like sort of trash in our own minds the Pharisees. And yet the Pharisees were uh, religious, like devout religious men who pursued the living of their Jewish faith with a level of intensity, a level of completion, a level of totality that was meant to be an example that would inspire many others in to live their Jewish faith beyond a, a mediocre way. So the intent, the idealism of the Pharisees wasn't a bad thing. It's a matter of, I will do this out of my own strength. I will accomplish this out of my own willing it. I am determined to conform my life to this set of rules. And when that happens, or when there is the, let's say, the pressure in the home to simply do these things, then there is not a guarantee. There is no guarantee that at the heart of these kids' lives, there will be, in fact, a heart of faith. I know too many families that were in that like boat growing up. Sometimes it's the kids talking about it. Sometimes it's the parents talking about it, where there was a um, strong sense of um, a strong sense of all of those things that I'm talking about. That sort of Pharisaical approach to living the faith, but the heart wasn't there. And so it's one of the things that I feel most called to on Sound Insight is helping Catholics, like especially Catholics who would listen to this program, right? You love the church, you love your faith, but are you letting Jesus love you? Even that language can feel so like, oh, it's can be so emotional. And, and what are you talking about, Tom? You know, I want a manly faith. Well, let's take a look at you know, the transformative power of these encounters that lead to uh, um, the most profound witness. Like St. Paul is the easy one, the Pharisee, right? Thought he was fulfilling God's call, but in fact was literally betraying God's call in what he was doing. He was so convinced of his rightness, it took him literally to be knocked off his horse and to become blinded. It was only through that that he was brought to a place of, what do you call it? Powerlessness, desperation. And in his desperation, what did he do? He fasted and he prayed and he fasted and prayed some more. And he was blind. He could not literally see his way forward. And it was only when Ananias came and laid hands on him, the Holy Spirit caused these um, his scales to fall from his eyes and he saw and the Holy Spirit, he had an encounter. He had an encounter with Jesus, and then he had an encounter with the Spirit. And then he was empowered, there it is, transformed by God's power to be able to live the faith. 
So his call, his vocation, he thought he was living it correctly, and it was only when he experienced radical desperation that there was the breakthrough that led to the empowerment, the transformation. And so here's my hope. My hope is that for our kids' lives, for our marriages, for our own lives, that the encounters don't only come as a result of us being broken down, experiencing the desperation of family members gone astray, of uh, personal like health situations or life situations really uh, gone bad. So too often that's the case, but that doesn't have to be so. And this is where the example of Elijah comes in. I mentioned at the beginning of the program, going through the Office of Readings these days, reading about Elijah. And in um, in 1 Kings chapter 16, you have the story of Ahab, the king of Israel, or the king of Judah, sorry. Um, uh, I'm sorry, king of Israel. Um, he was chasing after Elijah, right? He was... Um, uh, seeking his life. And uh, what does the Lord do? The The Lord says to Elijah, leave here, go east, and hide in the wadi Cherith, east of the Jordan. You shall drink of the stream, and I have commanded ravens to feed you there. So he left and did as the Lord had commanded. He went and remained by the wadi Cherith, east of the Jordan. Jordan. Ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the stream. Now, I want you to hear that. What did the Lord ask Elijah to do? Well, the Lord called Elijah to be this prophet, and then he further called him, go, go to this place. Go to this place where you have water to drink, but when it comes to food, what's your situation I'm asking you to put yourself in? It's a situation of radical desperation. The Lord asks Elijah to trust him enough to be desperate, to be poor, to not have what it takes. He was powerless to feed himself. That's the position that the Lord asked him to willingly enter into. Now, how much easier, how easy of a temptation would it have been for Elijah to say, you know, Lord, when I go to the river, why don't I just bring a fishing rod? I can catch some fish. Or, hey, Lord, why don't you like have me hide out here and then I'll go into the city to get some provisions you know, uh, every other day or something like that. No, the Lord said, trust me, I'll send ravens morning and night with bread and meat. And look at that. That is radical trust. That is authentic spiritual poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit the way that Elijah was poor in spirit. For his is bread and meat provided by ravens. His is the kingdom of God. And it's amazing. God provided. Now, are we willing to do that? The Lord is not going to call us to say, watch for the ravens dropping in the bread and meat. 
but he just might ask you to put yourself in a place of powerlessness to trust that he will provide. He'll provide what you need, the food that you need to be able to go forward. But then when the water ran dry, because no rain had fallen, the Lord said to him, move on to Seraphath of Sidon and stay there. I've designated a widow there to provide for you. Now that's all by itself ironic and paradoxical that a widow who's powerless, who has none to defend her, she's going to provide. Um, And he left and he went to Zarephath. And as he arrived at the entrance, a widow was gathering sticks. He called out to her, please bring me a small cup full of water to drink. She left to get it and he called out after her, please bring along a bit of bread. As the Lord your God lives, she answered, I have nothing baked. There's only a handful of flour in my jar, a little oil in my jug. Just now I was collecting a couple of sticks and to go in and prepare something for myself and my son. When we have eaten it, we shall die. Do not be afraid, Elijah said. Go and do as you propose, but first make me a little cake and bring it to me. Then you can prepare something for yourself and your son. For the Lord God of Israel says, The jar of flour shall not empty, nor the jug of oil run dry, until the day when the Lord sends rain upon the earth. She left and did as Elijah said. She was able to eat for a year and her son as well. The jar of flour did not go empty, nor the jug of oil run dry, as the Lord had foretold through Elijah. Another example of Elijah trusting that he put himself into the hands of one who was powerless as well. She trusted, and look what the Lord did, multiplied the flour and the oil. The Lord will provide supernaturally if we're willing to trust It doesn't always have to come through tremendous trials and sufferings. It can come through the testing of saying, do you trust me enough to allow me to lead you into places where I will take care of you? Beyond what you can do for yourself, I will do it. That's the level of call, the level of poverty, and the level of empowerment that the Lord has in store for us. I hope and pray that you found that a blessing. God bless your day. Join me tomorrow for more Sound Insight.